0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey
1: there, Food Junkies listeners. Thank you so much for helping us to reach 100,000 downloads before January 1st, 2022. As a thank you, Vera, Clarissa, and I have created a video for your viewing pleasure. Be sure to check out the Facebook groups for a chance to see that. All right. For today's episode, we have Dr. Kim Dennis. Dr. Kim, as she is known, has been treating addictions, substance, process, and food, mood disorders, eating disorders, PTSD, and personality disorders for more than a decade. In 2016, she co-founded SunCloud Health and currently serves as chief medical officer and CEO. Kim Dennis is a board-certified psychiatrist who specializes in treating addictions, eating disorders, and co-occurring disorders. She has helped thousands of remarkable people with their illnesses. Her knowledge of eating disorders and addiction isn't just limited to her academic and clinical experience, having had her own personal experience as a woman in recovery from an eating disorder and alcoholism. Today, she's able to combine her personal journey with her medical training to help SunCloud Health patients become emotionally strong, responsible problem solvers who are inspired to create fulfilling lives for themselves. She believes in and maintains a holistic perspective in the practice of psychiatry, incorporating biological, psychosocial, and spiritual approaches into the individually tailored treatment programs for each patient at SunCloud Health. In today's episode, we hear Dr. Kim's story, about her SunCloud program and what it looks like, how her team treats food addiction and eating disorder, and how they separate the signal from the noise, different treatment interventions for the physiological and psychological symptoms of this disease. We briefly touch on fasting. We talk about volume eating and addiction. We talk about harm reduction and abstinence. We cover scales and body weight and weight bias. We talk about the ever-importance of community, and as a special treat, be sure to tune in next week for a special part two to our interview with Dr. Kim Dennis. All right, here we go. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Well, thank you, Dr. Kim, for being here with us today. Will you share with us your personal story and how it intertwines with your professional journey?
2: Yes. So I'm an adult psychiatrist, board certified. I did all of my training at the University of Chicago. That's medical school, research, residency, and college. And when I was in college there, I started experiencing eating disorder symptoms that looked like binging and purging. And I also, for the first time ever, had alcohol. And I come from you know, a long family lineage of alcoholism. So the genes were there I experienced a lot in the way of trauma growing up in an alcoholic household, physical abuse, sexual abuse. My father died when I was 11. So that's what I was sort of coming into the University of Chicago with. And I had lots of God-given talents, you know, like I was a great athlete. I was intellectually gifted and I got to the UFC and felt very, very different from all of the other smart people who were there with professors and lawyers and doctors as parents. My dad didn't finish high school. He was a welder. My mom finished high school and was very bright, but never went to college. We grew up, you know, we were on food stamps. In powdered milk. And I was in a dorm with a bunch of people who had a very, what seemed like from the outside, a very, very different life experience than I did. so that's how my eating disorder started just by happenstance. I would eat while the other humans around me connected and conversed and talked politics and it really served to metabolize, I think, my anxiety and the shame that I brought to the table coming from where I came from. And it's not something I told anybody about ever, but I did try to get help in college. So I was a college athlete. I played basketball there. And at the student counseling center, it's probably a year after it started. My second year of college, I got accepted early into medical school. And I really wanted to be able to use, you know, the next three years, I was afraid of what was happening with food interfering with me being able to like, use the college years in the ways that I wanted to, and then also be able to actually go to medical school and do well in medical school and become a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor from the time I was two and my dad, you know, not two, but maybe second grade and my dad was sick. So it got worse as addiction does. Over time, the binges became bigger, the frequency became bigger until two years down the line three years down the line in my junior and senior year of of college, I was binging and purging almost every day. And then by medical school, every single day, relentlessly, all throughout the day. And I knew it was something that I couldn't stop. But the college counseling center, when I first went was like, it's not that bad. We can only do six sessions anyways. So Good luck. And then I had tried a couple other times to seek out therapists in the Hyde Park community, and there weren't eating disorder specialists. And they would, the ones that I did share what was going on, would be like horrified and like, I don't know how to help you. Like, I hope you make it back next week, which is a terrible thing to hear from a person, especially. I think most doctors, most people who've been traumatized don't think very highly of asking anyone for anything, you know, especially hope. And then to cross that threshold and ask and be met with, yeah, like that's really messed up. We don't know how to help it was, felt like a death sentence to me. And I had pretty much surrendered to in medical school, like, I'm just going to die of this and that's okay. And that's where I was at. And I hadn't really I finally found a therapist who had addiction and eating disorders experience which is rare. It's rare now. It was really rare back then and that guy saved my life and was able to talk about what was going on with food for me as like part of the disease of addiction. And I started going to 12-step meetings, both around food and around alcohol, with a lot of resistance. You know, it wasn't like, hey, you should go to these mutual support groups. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, it was not like that at all. But eventually, there were people in those meetings who had nutritionists who understood food addiction, which, again, extremely rare, you know. And I just feel like I was like blessed, you know, with grace to have found people, the very few people who were able to say to me, like, I think there are certain food substances that may be fueling this for you. Like, yes, you have an eating disorder. You need to restore weight and we want to help you have normalized eating. And there may be some food substances that just aren't safe for you to eat. You know, it's that level of sophistication between like food addiction doesn't exist. All foods fit for all people all the time, which is dogma and insane. And everything's food addiction. Like everybody with an eating disorder shouldn't be eating, you know, like sugar and white flour is dangerous for everybody with an eating disorder. You know, like neither of those are accurate. And for many, it's, you know, there's overlap. There's huge biodiversity. And I think if I was at a standard eating disorder treatment center, I would have died, quite honestly. So I got abstinent from binging and purging on April 11th of 2001 and feel like I recovered from my eating disorder within the next you know, two years, two or three years. And there are certain food substances that I have learned for my body elicit a chemical, biochemical reaction in my brain that is simply not safe for me, which is very different than I don't want to eat that food because I'm afraid I'm going to be fat. And there are people who have that. And I think our job as clinicians is to think about eating disorders as biological. Cynthia Bulick talks about them as, you know, like a physiogenetic disorder, which has physiology under it. It has genes under it. It has our society that we live in under it. It has thin bias. You know, it's so complicated. There are so many different facets that I think anybody who says this is true for all eating disorders is out of their mind.
1: So how did that then evolve into what you do today? Like how did that personal intertwine then with that professional? And you were like, this is I'm going to be a doctor. This is, and this is who I'm going to work with. This is how I'm going to treat people. How did that come to be? Yeah.
2: So that's a great question because I was very, you know, from the time I knew I was going to be a doctor, you know, like in my head, like when my therapist said like, you need to go to treatment, you need to at least like look at a PHP or an IOP program. And I was like, not going to happen. Like, I will not do that because I am in medical school and I don't recommend this, but you know, I did a more intensive outpatient treatment, but I was in medical school while I was doing this. And I ended up taking a year of, I went to my dean and said, I'd like to do a year of research. And I really did want to do research. But the primary purpose of taking that year was to get out of the hospital, like 4am to 8 or 9pm schedule, and put some time into getting help and healing. And during that year, one of the uh, attendings who was running basically a process group for medical students and then a process group for once I got into residency, I decided psychiatry. So in, in that year off, I had to decide what specialty I was going into. I loved surgery just because it was so concrete and black and white. And what I discovered in that year, though, was it was okay for me to and important for me to put like life balance and what I want to do with other areas of my life into the equation on making that decision which felt like a very scary thing to do at the time but there was one patient on the inpatient psychiatric unit like I had a great experience there and the time just went by which I think is a good sign you know like if you're doing something and you don't care if it's six o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night or four o'clock in the afternoon when you leave. I think that's a good sign. I had that experience in the OR. I had that experience on my psychiatric rotation and I ended up deciding psychiatry because I didn't really want to spend like the next 10 years only working and training because I was looking to do a surgical subspecialty, not just general surgery, of course. So I decided to do a residency in psychiatry. But even then, I was like, I would never treat some like addiction or eating disorder patients, you know, because that would be there was something that felt like shameful about that. Like, how could you as a person who has had these things treat people? It felt way too close to home. And that really my world sort of like, gelled into a hole after one of these supervision groups with this psychiatrist who disclosed he was in recovery from an eating disorder. And his whole practice was addictions and eating disorders. And people would, like my therapist said, you know, if you were a cardiologist and you had stent in your heart, would you think it's inappropriate for that cardiologist to do his job? And I was like, well, of course not. So really it was... That was a key moment for me and a key experience. And I ended up working with the psychiatrist after I finished residency and starting a residential at the same time. So I got a lot of great training, a lot of great mentorship from the psychiatrist, a guy named Jeffrey Roth in Chicago.
0: Awesome. Like that's it's just so wonderful how personal can become professional. And it sounds to me like this is a passion for you. And it's someone who has experienced that polarized treatment in eating disorder and addiction and not having either of them be the right fit to have a clinic that treats both and can you know, muddle through the noise of what is what and what is the best individualized treatment plan. I think that is, I mean, because exactly like you said, right, there's no one treatment that's going to work for everyone. So can you tell us a little bit more about your clinic, your program, your treatments, what kind of professionals are on your team?
2: Yeah. So one other thing about my training, I did You know, I spent a year working with Daniel LaGrange because we had an academic eating disorder clinic at the University of Chicago, which is rare, like most medical students and residents get no eating disorder training. So I had that in the background, too, you know, and I knew I loved working with that patient population. But that, too, was like research, you know, which is very specific, very black and white. This is the treatment that we're studying and this is how we do it. So I just wanted to throw in that little piece that I like forget about sometimes, but that too was very influential to me. But our clinic here, so from the outset, the artificial DSMology of mental health never made sense to me. It seemed like pseudoscience. It seemed to not fit many patients who have 3, 4 different quote unquote, primary diagnoses all happening at the same time. And also I'm the type of person and I have the type of brain that looks at, that can see similarities. You know, I think you were mentioning like, where's the signal underneath all the noise. So there's huge overlap between addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder anorexia, bulimia, binge, you know, even patients with eating disorders can have all three of those if you look at the course of their 20 years of having an eating disorder. So I've always had an eye towards let's treat the individual, let's respect their biodiversity, and let's look at what is the underlying pathophysiology. That helps me as a psychiatrist, even if I'm just talking about psychopharmacology, look at, Well, instead of treating everybody who has this DSM diagnosis with the same medication, addiction is a great example of this. You know, some people with addiction have dopamine receptor issues. Some people with addiction have dopamine production issues. Some people with addiction have something else going on neurochemically. And my, you know, the tools that I have, the relatively limited tools that we have in our pharmacology box need to be selected based on what we think would help the person's brain, not just, well, they have depression and this is FDA approved for depression. So this is what I'm going to use. And we really have built our practice and our clinics here using that model, which is, I think, I'm biased, but I think a sophisticated model, you know, it's not. And we've been able to handpick clinicians who want more than just cookie cutter medicine, cookie cutter psychiatry, who are able to really incorporate non-dual treatment approaches and non-dual therapies and a non-dual treatment model, essentially. And that's hard. You know, a lot of new clinicians really want, like, what's the policy? Like, how many times, like, if this happens, I just want you to tell me what to do. 100% of the time. And there are some like broad strokes that exists for, but so much in what we see clinically is not going to be the same answer for patient X as it is for patient Y. So our clinic is really built on treating people with complex co-occurring addictions and eating disorders, being able to treat patients in a truly patient-specific way. This is very rare when it comes to nutrition and, you know, nutritional therapy. Many eating disorder professionals that I talk to are like, how do you do that at a meal support table when someone with restricting anorexia sees somebody with food addiction not having a cupcake for her snack? And we do that because from the intake process, from the, okay, you are a person who wants to receive treatment here, let's give you informed consent these are the things that we look at these are the things that we believe in there are some people that can't tolerate some of the boundaries that we set around coming to suncloud for treatment or who don't who aren't interested in for example trying alternatives to stimulants or benzodiazepines. There are some people who shouldn't get off of stimulants or benzodiazepines. And those are folks that we have wonderfully have a a whole number of other treatment centers who will support that. There are people who don't want to stop using marijuana every night, you know, because it helps them with X, Y, or Z. That's totally fine. We respect that. Here are three other treatment centers who will support that. So I think that gives sort of a pretty clear overview of just philosophically of where we come from. We have intensive outpatient PHP at three different locations in the Chicago area. And we just opened a 21-bed residential unit last month as well, which is super exciting.
1: That is super exciting. And as a I'm a master's level dual clinician, mental health and substance use disorder, licensed addiction counselor. So like everything you're saying just gets me so excited. And I was telling Clarissa and the other ladies who are listening in today that I was like maybe after this interview I can come shadow <laughs> I want to at one of you guys' clinics it's just so <laughs> it's just so exciting. I mean where I live we have a PHP IOP and just regular level one outpatient eating disorder clinic right here in the community in which I live. In fact, it's, I think it's the biggest one in the Southwest. I could be wrong about that, but they don't deal with the addiction part, you know, and I don't know that they even address food. I don't even know that food addiction is, is even on the radar let alone that there could be yeah. addiction going on in these cycles of the eating disorders, right. In the like endogenous endorphins and like just getting addicted to that cycle. So I just, I get so excited when I hear about programs like yours, because to me, it's a fantasy, right? Like that's the dream that I've had for a while now. And then here it turns out people are already doing it. So. Thank you yeah. for coming before us and doing But that. there's a lot of shade thrown at me in the eating disorder world. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure. And there are even people who are
2: like, oh, like take the addicts. Like we don't want to treat them. Like those that? are the people that wreak havoc on our meals. You know? Oh my gosh. Or, I get like, that all the time. Yeah. We see food addiction, but we don't talk about it. You know, we would never say we treat it. We just keep that behind closed doors with this one patient, which is stigmatizing. And, you know, the implicit message there is like, there's something wrong with you. Don't talk about this.
1: Yeah. Or if we're got out, then yeah. (laughs) we'd be overrun or something. Yeah. (laughs) So will you walk us through then how you decipher which clients need like eating disorder treatment versus food addiction treatment? Like, do you use the food addiction scale or do you have some sort of screening or assessment process?
2: Well, I mean, just to start with, we don't even take a stance of eating disorder versus food addiction, right? So there are people who have eating disorders alone there are people who have eating disorders plus food addiction and there are people who have food addiction alone so we use you know a standard diagnostic interview standard psychiatric interview and then the nutritionist does a detailed history food history weight history behavior history you know cognitive areas of the disease history we look at growth curves as well when we have access to them and we use the Yale Food Addiction Scale 2.0, but we don't just use that because there are plenty of false positives on the Yale Food Addiction Scale. We know that chronic undernourishment and chronic deprivation can produce something that looks like addiction, right? Because the reward center is becomes more and more sensitized as body weight decreases. That's not usually food addiction. Food addiction You know, Timothy Brewerton and David Wiss wrote a really nice paper about this, like teasing out the signal from the noise. And some of the stuff that they talked about is exactly what we train our clinicians in, what we train our nutritionists in. Here are the risk factors. And just because somebody has a risk factor doesn't mean they have it. So the risk factors, the sort of like other risk factors we look at, we try to screen out anybody whose disease started with deprivation and cutting out sugar. Most of our patients who truly have food addiction and who respond well to a nutritional philosophy that is supports them in having a low exposure meal plan are people who started off with out of control behaviors. You know, out of control bingeing, out of control bingeing and purging. Many of them have personal histories of addiction or very very heavy genetic loading for addiction and almost all of them have histories of early developmental trauma you know so if somebody has all of those factors if if they have failed standard treatments you know two three four times we're going to try something different and those are some of the things that go into deciding patient preference obviously is part of it as well and i think the biggest clinically the biggest thing that we want to make sure that we're doing is that we're we're not taking something as food addiction that is a restrictive eating disorder whether that's anorexia nervosa, higher body weight anorexia nervosa or lower body weight anorexia nervosa.
0: So we often talk about food addiction as a physiological but also a behavioral. Addiction. And so, how do you work differently, or how do those treatments co align? Because, you know, food addiction is the substance use disorder. And, you know, what part of it is the process addiction? Can you yep. talk about how the treatments for that might differ or how they work together? Yeah.
2: So, using, you know, and this was one of my questions early on as a clinician. Well, when somebody says food addiction, do they mean the person is addicted to a process and the rituals and the endogenous, you know, the the chemical milieu that happens when somebody restricts also looks like addiction, right? So, and that too is metabogenetic, you know, like that is, um, so it's, when I say process addiction involving food and eating related behaviors, that includes many patients with anorexia right? Because you talk to somebody and the studies are starting to emerge looking at reward saliency and reward circuitry in anorexia. For so long, we approached research with patients with anorexia from a mind of somebody who doesn't have anorexia, right? So like, I have a normal mind and as a normal mind person, what's rewarding to me is food, right? Hard for researchers to even conceive that like, what's, people with anorexia, they have great delayed gratification. Not true. What a person with anorexia gets really gratified by is not eating, you know, and that's not just psychological. There's something that happens biologically that I think is at the root of the hyperactivity that we see in anorexia. People, when they are in their disease, feel high, ex- Described feeling high, many people, you know, so even that, I think for many patients with anorexia, have an addictive process going on. For people with bulimia and binge eating disorder, sometimes with restricting anorexia, the treatment for that isn't um, avoid sugar or white flour. And a lot of, I think part of why food addiction gets a bad rap is because the few places historically that have done it, or substance abuse treatment centers that do it, do it in a very rigid, like all or nothing way, you know, and that actually hurts, you know, just as much as not acknowledging food addiction hurts that subset of patients, food as substance addiction hurts that subset of patients that actually have it. Saying that food addiction is, you know, for everyone with an eating disorder hurts a whole lot of people with eating disorders who don't have it. So this is another area of complexity to the picture, because when it is about food as a substance. The treatment for that needs to incorporate the substances that we're actually supporting a patient putting into their body. When it's about the process, our focus is on interventions, behavioral interventions, mutual support interventions, behavioral activation around breaking those breaking those routines, you know, which too is very, we have research that shows the top-down ingrained habitual you know, frontostriatal brain circuit. And I think there are, the more we know about what's going on biologically, the more both therapy and biologic tools will have to help make the brain more flexible. You know, and I think for regardless of what the eating disorder diagnosis is, like one of the hallmarks of health in psychiatry is flexibility, you know, and brain flexibility. And how often do we see in our field academics? clinicians who have who show and demonstrate like no capacity to have to hold more than their own tunnel vision. This is what eating disorder treatment is.
1: Yeah. As you were explaining that, I had a couple of thoughts. One, like all the fasting that's that everybody's doing. And I don't know. I mean, I know I can speak for Clarissa because we talk about this. We often have these clients that are like, okay, I've been on this abstinent food plan or low exposure food plan for X amount of days. When can I start fasting? And then they want to do, and it's not just like, can I just do time restricted eating where like kitchen closes after my last meal and it doesn't open again until breakfast it's, I want to do two weeks and I'm like, what? And then, you know, and they're talking about, yeah, and it feels so good. And if, you know, and and people are glorifying it, you know, on social media. And it just reminded me of what you were talking about, like with when anorexia nervosa individuals, and like, they get that high of like restricting, like that is their gratification. And I just wonder, is that the same or very similar mechanisms happening with that phenomena that's happening right now with all this fasting stuff, you yeah. know, first and foremost. And then I think the other part too, is when you were talking about the differences between food as a substance and food as a process, like, is it possible? And I guess I think it is possible because I think I have clients who (laughs) who go through this. And I think myself even as well, the substance piece we take out, right. So, so no longer are we eating those things, the sugar, flour, grains, fill in the blank, whatever it is, that's acting psychoactively for them. But then there's still this return to like overeating or using Brussels sprouts or carrots or broccoli or something. Right. And it's not necessarily a binge, but certainly, there's a seeking of something going on with that, and so is that emotional eating, or is that food addiction as a process? It's hard to know, you know, and it's
2: also you know this concept of flexibility that I think in recovery people grow into and get more connected to their body and their intuition and can feel like maybe I ate you know more than I would have if x, y, or z wasn't going on, and it's okay, you know, like so getting to a place of like part of like normal human behavior is having waxes and wanes in what we're consuming. I don't think somebody with food addiction or an eating disorder goes from like, I'm entering treatment to that in two weeks, you know? (laughs) So, and with that example that you use, sometimes we don't know, you know, and I think helping people get to a place of like, you know what, we don't know. You're safe right now. This wasn't an objective binge. You know, you didn't deprive yourself. You didn't like objectively binge. Is this emotional eating? We can talk about what's going on emotionally. Is this part of a process addiction? You know, one of the topics that comes up a lot is volume addiction, which I think touches on what you're talking about. And that can both be a process, but also is a physical addiction because you know that amount of fullness has very real biochemical sensory it's an experience and i think i feel like i'm not giving you any straight answers here because it's so you know it's just so the experience of eating and food and putting stuff into our bodies touches on so many different things it touches on trauma for a lot of people touches on societal norms it touches on The reward center, it touches on habit, touches on culture. So it it can be infinitely complex. And I think when working with any individual patient, it's all a harm reduction model. You know, like is it harm reduction or is it abstinence? It's all harm reduction. Whether I'm treating somebody just with alcoholism, like those people don't stop drinking, smoking, overworking, gambling when they start addiction treatment. It's graded. You know, and it's ongoing. So I think when I'm working with a patient, what I try to do with that example specifically is, well, let's start with what we feel like we really know, right? Like you have a history of bulimia or you have a history of binge eating disorder. When's the last time you had an objective, out of control binge that, you know, was way out of bounds and you knew it and was damaging to you? And what is this? Maybe it's some of that. Maybe it's not. You know, and I think being able to hold patients in the ambiguity and support them in—it's kind of like an exposure response prevention, right? Like let's expose you to ambiguity and let's support you in not responding with "I'm bad," "I overate." You know, I should go back to you know weighing and measuring my food. You know, which some people need pre-plated food. At some points in their recovery, I haven't met you know there are some people who have to do that ongoing, you know, and and that's okay too. But the majority of patients who get good treatment that's tailored to their biology and get trauma informed treatment can get to a place where they're in tune with their body, even if genetic biogenetically, they don't have the capacity to register fullness cues. Their bodies after eating in a normalized way, builds body memory. And I think all people can learn to start trusting their bodies on a fundamental level. That I think is a message that we are given regardless of where we grow up. You know, there's some like danger about your body. Like your body must look at this external way in order for you to be okay.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important to talk about, because, you know, we definitely have the individuals who come to us, and they're so focused on the scale. And so then maybe they remove the substances, right? So they're off the flour and the sugar, and, you know, they're doing the mindful eating, they're doing everything else, but they still have the ruminating thoughts about the weight, And the scale. And that is what is driving them back to the binges. So, how do you work with clients around like body image and using the scale? Like, because I imagine, again, this is another piece of the puzzle in this field that we need to talk about.
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think historically in the eating disorder world, you know, we say like, don't ever weigh yourself. You don't need to know the number. Just, turn that all over to your physicians. And for some people that works and that's how it has to be. But that too, I think there are some people who do need to be exposed to what the number is so that they can trust in the process. You know, it's like the thought of surrendering, you know, I'm giving my whole body over to you is way too terrifying for a subset of patients who You know, have trauma histories, who have severe anorexia, who have severe binge eating disorder. But particularly in people, you know, I see it a lot in people with food addiction this obsession about I have to be quote unquote thin in order to be well. And I think that more than anything else keeps people stuck and keeps people sick. Or they get to this whatever thin weight and they're not at all what I would call serene. Not at all. Sometimes being at an artificially for you artificially low weight because it's on somebody's BMI chart can also propel things like, you know, rigidity and thinking ruminations about body image, depression, you know, our brains need glucose and foods that can be broken down into glucose in ways that don't like cause huge spikes in the reward center for people with food addiction in order for our brains to function and in order for us to make neurochemicals that are associated with well-being from a mood perspective. So, you know, I've had patients with 20 years of quote-unquote abstinence in what I will say is highly regimented, rigid eating programs where there are whole food groups that are cut out who have intractable depression, but they're quote-unquote abstinent. And when you work to move the needle for those people to no grains, no carbs whatsoever, you know, being in ketogenesis 24-7 for years to we're going to expose you to carbohydrates and a variety of them that can be metabolized by your body and produce like manageable, tolerable spikes in your reward center for you. If we have to add naltrexone and a acamprosate on board to help you tolerate that, we will. But I can't treat your depression is going to stick around if you keep eating in this way. And I believe the two are connected. And that process is really hard to undo if somebody for the last 20 years has been eating anorexically, thinking that that's the solution to their binge eating disorder because when you re-expose people, even to complex carbohydrates with a low glycemic index, because the reward center is now like heightenedly, you know, very, very heightened from years of deprivation, they feel like you're giving me something that is an allergy food for me, you know, and it's a matter of providing support, providing psychoeducation, and just engaging them in let's do the trial. And if two weeks from now and four weeks from now, you feel the same way we can revisit.
1: Oh, we have to have you back for a part two, because I know there's just so many things that we're never going to get to, but I just like, again, our listeners can't see us, but Clarissa and I are like nodding our heads. Yes. And I think, again, it's just been so nice. And, I, and this is probably why David with pointed us in your direction, because you're speaking our language. We feel like we're often railing against this tidal wave of more concrete you know, the giants, the leaders that came before us, we're just met with opposition so often. I think it's just so yeah. refreshing and I think nice it's more than opposition. Yeah. Right. I it mean, is. I'm being kind here. Let's,
2: let's be, yeah, that's true. Okay.
1: <laughs> Fine. Thanks. Thanks. For, thanks for calling me out. It's yeah. I'm way being kind. Than, it's way more I than opposition. Yeah. And so I think like, I'm just like, I'm literally like having this, visceral like, just like this wave of relief to hear you just say the things that you're saying, because I think. I have practiced that way for so long and you know, and, and definitely moving into the food addiction world has only been in the last few years to just specialize in that that area of it, but definitely treating mental health and, and substance use disorder across the board, you know, and just knowing like there are so many biases out there and there are so many problematic assumptions that people make. And things like the weight bias, like you were saying, like being this restrictive, you know, on this restrictive food plan for 20 years, but by God, I've got 20 years of abstinence, but they're depressed. And it's like, but if you're not introducing these foods that help create, right. It's like the whole tryptophan fan serotonin. I mean, there's like yep. a chemical thing that happens. I'm not smart enough to know it all, but <laughs> exactly yeah. how that works. But I, I have enough knowledge to know that we need those things. And so, yeah, I mean, it's keeping us sick, but in a different way, like if we're getting to the end of that 20 years or we're getting to our deathbed and we're like, but I had 50 years, but it was miserable because I didn't have enough serotonin or enough dopamine or oxytocin or something like is that truly recovery or is that just, Hey, I was sober from those things. Therefore I was well, or like you were saying that number on the scale, or if my body doesn't look a certain way, because there are clinicians in this field who do have a real weight bias, who will look at somebody who is literally in recovery off those substances and say, well, they must not be doing something right. Because they're still in a larger size body. The worst.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, within the field, especially, you know, there's plenty of primary care doctors that do that all day, every day to the masses. Yes. Yes. But we hope within this field that we can, you know, get to a level of just a little bit more sophistication, you know, and, you know, we talk about inclusivity all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And the eating disorder world is unless you are fully recovered, unless you eat all foods because they fit for everybody, you don't count. Your voice doesn't count. There's not treatment for you. If you're a professional that treats it, you're excluded and you know yeah. not in person because everybody's nice, you know, <laughs> but, no, but behind the
1: scenes. Behind the scenes and very backhandedly like on, on social media, using social media platforms to just like Yeah. It's craziness for sure. And then you think about all the young people that are mostly on social media and seeing those messages. So because we're running out of time, I really, really, really want you to answer this for our listeners or or explain for our listeners the importance of dopamine receptor density and how community really impacts that, like just really driving home the importance of community.
2: So that's another piece that I think, you know, when I hear people railing against 12-step support or 12-step communities for people with eating disorders. There, we know, this is one of the few things we know, when people are socially isolated, their dopamine receptor density decreases. We know when people binge eat, their dopamine receptor density decreases. And even if I had the best medication in the world to add dopamine back to your brain, if you don't have the receptors, that medication isn't gonna do a whole lot. And one of the best ways to add dopamine receptors is to support people in feeling like they belong, to support people in being around other humans, you know, which in my experience, I can't say that I've treated any patients in the last 20 years who have no way, shape, or form of trauma. I know that was a double negative. So every patient that I've treated, with an eating disorder and addiction in the last 20 years has had some form of trauma that you know they may not have ptsd but their trauma has impacted them and at a very young age this phenomenon happens so if you're growing up with family dysfunction if you're growing up where there's shame for other reasons swirling around the household i oftentimes say "Shit rolls downhill you know kids attuned kids pick up on that absorb it and then play it out you know and that has a early developmental brain-based decrease in dopamine receptors which drives kids to seek replenishment of that sometimes that's through food sometimes that's through risk-taking sometimes many times kids get diagnosed with adhd and get put on stimulants at a very young age not because they have ADHD, but because they have the beginnings of post traumatic stress disorder or developmental trauma disorder, as Bessel van der Kolk says. So, yeah, I mean, I also haven't met too many people with eating disorders that think it's a great idea to like go be part of a group, you know, like, no, thank you. Can't we just do one on one forever? <laughs>
0: Uh, well, and I think it also explains a lot about COVID and how eating disorder spiked, right? Or yes. food addiction. We definitely saw a huge increase in individuals who were reaching out to us because they realized, you know, it's the pandemic, like I was drinking maybe a little too much. And but food is the lesser of the evil. So that's yep. what I found out I was using instead. And so I think this dopamine response you're speaking of explains this quite clearly. I'm wondering if you can answer our signature question, which is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction and or food addiction recovery, what would it be?
2: It's a really good question. I mean, probably, you know, when I think about my college experience, it was like havoc was wreaked on a college experience. You know, when I think about the things that I loved, I loved playing basketball, and that was affected my relationships. Like, I had, I have still like the best teammates and most supportive teammates in the world, you know. But this addiction, addiction interferes with connection, right? Secrets, secrets kill, you know, and damage relationships. So I think what I would tell my younger self is like, you deserve all of this. You deserve all of this connection. You're in a place now that has amazing people who actually care about you and would love to help you share it, you know, like share it with the people that are around you, who, even if they don't know how to help you will, you know, go to bat for you and find somebody that can help you. So it's the shame piece. You know, if I would have learned a long, long time ago that none of this was my fault, you know, like it's not your fault to have a disease. This is a disease. There are actually treatments for it. And today we can say that with a lot more confidence than we could, you know, 20, 30 years
0: ago. I love that so much because it's so true. We, I think to some degree, everyone struggles with their relationship with food. And it's just one thing most people don't want to talk about.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're definitely going to invite you back. We're definitely going to invite these ladies. On as well for their own individual episodes. Awesome. Um, and we just appreciate you so much in everything you do and for being a light for us. So right. keep fighting the good fight. I do have a favor to ask of you two. Are sure. you
2: members of the Academy for Eating Disorders? No. No. Okay. So David Wiss and I are trying to keep the, um, I think right now it's called the Substance Use Disorders SIG Special Interest Group alive. They have special interest groups, probably 10 Mm -hmm. or 12 of them. Mm -hmm. And it's shocking to me that they are thinking of closing this one down, given how little, how poorly treated this patient population is even today. So if you know anybody at the academy, if you want to join yourselves, would love to have you in the special interest group where we're going to be doing some cool things like having monthly case consultations and other sorts of activities
1: like that. So I will sign absolutely. up. I had no idea such a thing existed. Yeah. I, will sign, <laughs> I will sign up for that. Yeah. I will join. Awesome. Thank cool. you.
2: Yeah. No, if you guys know
1: anyone, let me know. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody listening is a professional join and join this group, the special interest group and help out the cause. So awesome. thank you so much. Thanks.